You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 241, Drafting an Army and Freeing the Slaves. As 1780 began, the Continental Army suffered its ongoing struggle to keep an army in the field. While the army had begun using three-year enlistments in 1777, some of those enlistments were nearing their end. Soldiers were sick of the continual deprivation of food, clothing, and shelter, which took more lives than the enemy ever did. They saw many civilians doing quite well and naturally asked themselves, why am I continuing to serve when the country will not support my basic needs? These thoughts also impacted the ability to attract new recruits to the army. On January 1, 1780, about 100 men from Massachusetts who were stationed at West Point determined that their enlistments were up and began to march home. The men were living through a miserably cold winter without sufficient food, clothing, or shelter. Even though their officers did not discharge them, they saw no reason to remain beyond their enlistments and began marching back to New England. According to General Heath, the commanders were able to force the men to turn back. Subsequent hearings, of which there is very little record, found that some men should be discharged, others punished for attempting to desert, and others simply forced to return to duty. This incident did not get much attention at the time, but it was a foreshadowing of larger problems that would only become even greater over the remaining course of the war. Americans were not accustomed to serving multiple years in standing armies. While this was the norm in Europe, Americans were used to serving in militia, supplementing regular forces when required, but typically only seeing active duty for a few months or perhaps a year at most. In the early part of the war, most Continental enlistments followed this model, enlisting soldiers for no more than a year. Washington saw his army evaporate every winter and had to rebuild it before the enemy attacked in the spring. It was a point of frustration that he repeatedly brought to Congress, calling for multi-year enlistments. This would give him time to train and drill soldiers and then actually have time to use them in the field before they returned home. Now, even in the best of times, soldiers were not happy to be away from home for years on end. They had no way to support their families, who often had to rely on the charity of extended family or the community. Also, these were not the best of times. As I've discussed repeatedly, the Continental Army failed to provide the bare necessities required for the survival of the soldiers. Men regularly died from starvation, exposure, and disease brought about by their condition. Even the most idealistic men could sour on the army under such circumstances. While most soldiers kept to their commitments, few men not yet in the army had much desire to subject themselves to such hardships and deprivation. Recruiting got increasingly more difficult. 
Of course, when leaders could not convince men to volunteer for service, they turned to force. Even before the war, colonies had mandatory military service in the militia. All able-bodied men were required to serve. There were a few exemptions for religious reasons, and the wealthy had to pay fines for missed militia duty, but the mindset that all citizens were obliged to provide service was generally an accepted fact. Militiamen, of course, could be called to active service when the need arose. Men could be sent to extended duty without volunteering for that duty. When the war first began, colonial militia turned out for duty. Many of those units simply had their state enlistment obligations turned over to the Continental Army. Following independence, states would continue to call up militia units for duty as state leaders saw fit. In the early part of the war, when enthusiasm ran high, the Continental Army could mostly rely on volunteers. It offered some enlistment bounties to encourage some men, but did not have the power to draft its own conscripts. Congress issued enlistment quotas to each state, but had no way of enforcing these requests. As the war progressed, enthusiasm for military service waned, especially after enlistments turned into three years or the end of the war. States regularly failed to meet their quotas, leaving the Continental Army dangerously undermanned. George Washington called for conscription into the Continental Army as early as April 1777, but he could not get Congress to go along at that time. In February of 1778, Congress issued new enlistment quotas for 11 of the states. South Carolina and Georgia insisted on remaining exempt from the quotas. This first effort at mandatory conscription called for enlistments of nine months. It allowed states to meet their quotas however they liked. States could offer bounties to volunteers, they could hire soldiers from another state, they could essentially do whatever they wanted to fill up the ranks of the required regiments with whomever they could get. Washington was frustrated by all of this. He was getting soldiers who were not necessarily of the highest quality, and still could not keep them in service long enough to train them properly and still have time to use them against the enemy. State leaders, however, pushed back on coerced conscription into a long-term standing army. That was an indication of tyranny. If the people would not support the army voluntarily, then perhaps the cause did not really have the support of the people. State leaders also noted that forced conscription could also cause popular support for the cause to falter, leading to rioting and other resistance. Over the next couple of years, most states did enact some sort of conscription law. In order to meet Congress's quotas, each state militia issued smaller quotas to local militia leaders. Those local militias could obtain volunteers, but if not, they could fill the quotas through conscripts, usually by lot. A man selected as a conscript then had the choice either to fulfill his obligation or pay a substitute to take his place. The result was an army that began to skew away from free yeoman farmers and more toward unmarried sons, apprentices, and servants. Some draftees sent their slaves as substitutes. The percentage of African Americans and immigrants in the army continued to grow as the typical continental soldier became someone who was poorer without other prospects, and could not afford to avoid service. In short, the typical Continental soldier in this new standing army was moving much closer to the typical profile of an enlisted soldier in the British regulars. 
the efforts to fill enlistment quotas vary greatly by state. Massachusetts, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina all implemented relatively successful conscription systems. Other states, not so much. Congress could do little to force the issue other than to continue to nag the recalcitrant states to do their duty. Despite the difficulties in keeping an army with enough soldiers in the field, Congress remained optimistic. In January 1780, French Minister Luzerne called for the Continental Army to work with France in the following season to expel the British from the continent. Congress assured Luzerne that they would have over 25,000 men ready for duty in the spring. They felt this was a conservative number since the Board of War, under General Horatio Gates, assured them that the army would be around 35,000. This was all at a time when Washington was struggling to keep perhaps 5,000 men in camp at Morristown. Even if the states could somehow manage to fill those enlistment quotas, Congress still had no way to feed and supply such an army. It could not even supply the existing shell of an army it had currently. To rebuild and resupply the army, Congress used the only arrow in its quiver— It sent demands to the states to send soldiers and supplies for the 1780 campaign. Congress called on the states to furnish 35,000 soldiers by April 1st and to contribute a collective $1.2 million monthly to keep the army supplied. So the call went out. Spoiler alert, the states are not going to meet those quotas and they're certainly not going to contribute enough in supplies. So the difficulties for the Continental Army to put together a force large enough to contest with the continuing British threat, would continue to struggle. As the Continental Congress was desperately trying to keep the war going, Pennsylvania began taking steps to live up to the principles of liberty that had first inspired the war. On March 1, 1780, the Pennsylvania Assembly passed the first law in any of the newly independent states to begin the process of ending slavery. The bill was a result of political compromise. Although lots of people agreed that slavery was incompatible with the principles they were espousing in the war, the idea of actually losing one's labor force was a difficult step for many. One of the main arguments that you heard used against immediate abolition was that people who had been enslaved their entire lives with no education or independent living skills simply wouldn't do well with emancipation. The Gradual Abolition Act of 1780 came after nearly two years of debate. George Bryan originally authored the bill in the summer of 1778. Bryan had immigrated to Philadelphia from Dublin, Ireland in the 1750s. He came as a young man to start a career as a merchant. By the mid-1760s, he was involved in local politics and became a leading supporter of the non-importation agreements to protest the Stamp Act. Some combination of these trade restrictions and poor health led to his bankruptcy in 1771. As he recovered from both, he grew his participation in Philadelphia's radical politics. He was a strong supporter of the Radical Constitution of 1776, which he had helped to draft. Upon the Constitution's implementation in the spring of 1777, Bryan became the first vice president of Pennsylvania's Supreme Executive Council, serving under President Thomas Wharton. When Wharton died in 1778, 
Brian became the acting president. As acting president, Brian saw the return of government from exile in Lancaster and began the process of rebuilding Philadelphia following the British evacuation. Brian had come to believe that slavery was a moral evil and that Pennsylvania needed to end that institution. At the same time, he understood that simply abolishing slavery instantly was a political non-starter. Slavery was not the highest priority for Pennsylvania at a time when the state was struggling to recover from the recent British occupation of Philadelphia and the continuing problems of supporting the war effort. The Assembly first proposed an act of gradual emancipation in the summer of 1778. This act would not free any people who were enslaved at the time. It proposed that, following passage, any child born to a slave in Pennsylvania would automatically obtain his or her freedom after reaching adulthood. Over time, existing slaves would die off, and eventually Pennsylvania would rid itself of the institution of slavery. When first introduced, the Assembly considered even gradual abolition to be too controversial. It tabled the bill after its first reading and opted to focus on other issues related to the war effort. Meanwhile, Bryan faced a challenge for the presidency at the end of 1778 and lost to fellow radical Joseph Reed. Interestingly, Bryan was considered too radical, primarily due to his unwavering support for the Constitution of 1776 that made quite radical changes to Pennsylvania's government. Reed, who I've described as a radical in many earlier episodes, was actually seen by voters as a bit more moderate and supported some amendments to that Constitution. However, I think Reed's landslide victory had more to do with Reed's political power than his ideology. Bryan was overwhelmingly elected as vice president once again. Some have argued that Bryan never really was president. He was only acting as president following the death of President Wharton. The Pennsylvania Constitution did not really provide for succession. It only said that the vice president could act in the absence of the president. Since the president died, Vice President Bryan was only acting in his absence. The Assembly elected the president and vice president. There were no tickets or campaigns for office, so after overwhelmingly electing Reed as president for 1779, it overwhelmingly voted to continue Bryan as vice president. Bryan served about 10 months of his new one-year term as vice president, then resigned to become a justice on Pennsylvania's Supreme Court. During his final term as vice president, Reed submitted his revised proposal for the gradual abolition of slavery. It drew on the 1778 proposal, calling for the emancipation of any child born to a slave after its enactment. Daughters of a slave would receive freedom at age 18, while sons would be free at age 21. Slave owners would be required to register their slaves, so there, there would be a legal record of who was already enslaved and to record the birth dates of their children. The final bill did not come up for a vote until early 1780, after Bryan had left the executive council and joined the court. Months of debate and compromise had watered down the final bill a bit further. Children of slaves would not receive emancipation until age 28. The bill also outlawed the importation of new slaves into Pennsylvania. Visitors to the state could bring their slaves but any slave brought into the state 
who remained in Pennsylvania for six months, would receive immediate emancipation. The bill required annual registration of all slaves owned by anyone in Pennsylvania. It also ended discrimination in any existing laws against free African Americans living in the state. If you read the text of the statute itself, you might be shocked by some of the wording. For example, it refers to, quote, persons as well as Negroes and mulattoes, end quote. As if Negroes and mulattoes did not fall under the definition of persons. The reason for that, of course, was because those drafting the act did not want some later interpretation to claim that Negroes did not meet the definition of persons. It seems an unlikely possibility to the modern ear, but recall that the U.S. Supreme Court made just such a finding in the Dred Scott decision many decades later. The act also specified that the children of slaves, who were held as servants until age 28, had the same rights as other shorter-term indentured servants. Masters could punish servants, including lashings, but servants could also seek relief in the courts if, quote, evilly treated. Slaves and servants had the same rights in courts as everyone else, except, of course, a slave could not give witness testimony against a free man. If a slave or servant received a death sentence from a court, the state would charge the costs of the prosecution and execution to the owner of the slave or servant. The act made clear that it gave no protection to people trying to escape slavery and that owners had a legal right to reclaim escaped slaves. Anyone enticing, assisting, harboring, or employing an escaped slave could be held liable, just as they could have been prior to this law. Members of Congress and other foreign consuls who were located in Pennsylvania were exempt from the six-month rule. They could keep their slaves in Pennsylvania for as long as they wanted. Now, there was some opposition, even though the bill only impacted the children of existing slaves, and even those not for at least 28 years. The people of Chester and Lancaster counties submitted petitions in opposition to the bill. At the time of passage, about half of the black people living in Pennsylvania were already free. Opponents of the bill argued that even gradual abolition might create conflicts between the states and weaken the war effort. Opponents also expressed concerns that emancipated slaves would be equipped to participate as full citizens in society, and even that emancipated slaves might take advantage of their new freedom to join the British in their war against Pennsylvania. Despite these objections, the bill passed by a vote of 34 to 21 and took effect immediately. As I said, though, the bill did not impact any existing people. The first emancipation under this bill would not take place until a child born in 1780 reached the age of 28 in 1808. Even so, Pennsylvania became the first of the original 13 states to begin the process of abolition. The Republic of Vermont had outlawed slavery in its constitution of 1777, but no one recognized Vermont independence at the time, so its abolition clause had little influence. Pennsylvania, however, was one of the largest states in the Union and took the first step toward ending an institution that many saw as incompatible with the ideals of the Revolution. None of the other states would even begin making these changes until after the war ended. Massachusetts would effectively end slavery in 1783 as a result of a court interpretation of its constitution. 
but no other legislature would pass an abolition bill until after the war. Connecticut and Rhode Island would pass gradual emancipation bills in 1784. Pennsylvania would go on to amend its abolition bill in 1788. Some slave owners had found a way around emancipation by moving pregnant slaves to another state where the child could be born into a permanent state of enslavement. The 1788 amendment banned this practice. It also called for the immediate emancipation of any slaves owned by a person who moved into Pennsylvania with the intention of setting up permanent residence. I should also mention that Pennsylvania's slave law ended up causing some problems for George Washington as president. When the new federal government moved to Philadelphia, Washington had to make sure he rotated his slaves out of Pennsylvania before remaining in the state for six months. This allowed him to avoid their emancipation under state law. I mentioned that there was an exemption that applied to members of Congress, but this was not extended to members of the executive or judicial branches. Pennsylvania's decision to end slavery reflected the changing views about an institution that had been evolving for decades. It seems clear, though, that ideals professed by those seeking independence from Britain were having a larger impact on how people viewed the morality and propriety of slavery. Even though opposition to slavery was growing, not only in Pennsylvania, but in many states, the process of ending the institution was not one that would go quickly. Slavery would continue in Pennsylvania for many more decades, primarily out of a desire to assuage the difficulties of slave owners. But the act put the state on the path toward at least eventual abolition of slavery. In short, it was a start. Next week, skirmishing around New York over the winter of 1780 leads to multiple raids on both sides. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. Thanks also to Kurt Avard for support in the Robert Morris Circle. I really do appreciate everyone who can help support this podcast. For as little as $2 a month, you could become a supporter on Patreon. I'm also happy to receive one-time donations via PayPal, Venmo, or Zelle. 
Links to all of these are on my website at amrevpodcast.com. This week I covered two events, not directly related, but happening around the same time. Congress was moving toward establishing a much more traditional army based on the conscription of the poor and powerless. It was highly controversial at the time, and remains so. After the war ended, the U.S. government did not impose conscription again until 1863, during the third year of the Civil War. The Madison administration proposed conscription during the War of 1812, but Congress rejected it as contrary to the rights of a free people. It was not even proposed during the Mexican War. When the government imposed conscription for the second time in U.S. history, during World War I, Americans challenged the law as a violation of the 13th Amendment's prohibition on involuntary servitude. The Supreme Court rejected the challenge and allowed the law to stand. A presidential candidate in 1918 was even imprisoned for speaking out against the draft. Peacetime conscription was implemented for the first time in the U.S. in 1940, on the eve of World War II. President Truman reinstituted the peacetime draft in 1948 when the Korean War was going on. I call it a peacetime draft because the Korean War technically was not a declared war. But the draft continued even after the Korean conflict ended and remained in various forms until President Nixon finally ended the draft once and for all in 1969. Even so, since 1980, male citizens have been required to register for the draft, but the military itself has remained strictly voluntary. I suppose it's with some irony that at the same time Congress was forcing men involuntarily into the army, Pennsylvania was trying to put an end to chattel slavery. Even if the process was painfully slow, taking the first steps toward abolition turned to be very difficult. Slavery in Pennsylvania waned over a long time. As intended, the population decreased as the existing slave population aged and died. On top of that, the increasingly abolitionist views that prevailed in the state after the revolution encouraged many slave owners to manumit their slaves voluntarily ahead of time. Pennsylvania Quakers had required that all church members end ownership of people even before the law was passed. So there were only an estimated 6,000 slaves in Pennsylvania at the time of the law, or about 2% of the population. By 1790, the first U.S. census revealed that the number had dropped to around 3,700. The number continued to fall so that by 1840, there were only 64 slaves left in the state of Pennsylvania. In 1847, Pennsylvania finally legislated a complete end to all slavery within the state, which by that time only made a difference to a very few elderly people. Some might argue that this slow process, which did not free any existing slaves and provided no reparations for those who had been held in slavery, was far too little too late. But for those living through this time period, it was an important step in the right direction. I still find this voluntary transition to be remarkable. After all, slave owners were voters. Slaves were not. It's unusual that people vote against their own economic interests for ideological reasons. Well, maybe they didn't. There were so few slaves in the state that perhaps slave owners were simply outvoted. But the reality was that even if change came slowly, it was moving in the right direction. For most of us, well, at least for me, growing up, 
I learned that the North was anti-slavery and the South was pro-slavery. That was generally the case in the years leading up to the Civil War, but it did not necessarily reflect the views from earlier times. Certainly, I found it surprising years later to learn about the continuing practice of slavery in what were by that time known as the Free States. While slavery was on its way out, many slaves continued to be held in the North under these slowly evolving abolition laws until just shortly before the Civil War. If you want to read more about Northern slavery in the U.S., you'll want to check out my book recommendation this week. It's called The First Emancipation, The Abolition of Slavery in the North by Arthur Zilversmith. The book focuses on the legal and political events that led to Northern abolition in the first few decades of the United States. Uh, This book is an older one, first published in 1967, and it's out of print and may be hard to find. But there is a copy you can borrow on archive.org if you want to take a look at it. If you want to read more about conscription during the Revolution, there's a great article available on JSTOR called Citizenship and Compulsory Military Service, The Revolutionary Origins of Conscription in the United States by Meyer Kastenbaum. This is a 30-page journal article from Armed Forces and Society. It takes a more in-depth look at the issues related to conscription over the course of the war. Incidentally, JSTOR currently allows you to read 100 free articles per month as long as you have a free registration account. That, however, was a special pandemic deal that ends in June of 2022. After that, they may go back to their old policy, which was allowing a mere three free articles per month. So, if you want to enjoy their generosity while it lasts, you might want to take advantage of it while you can. My question this week asks, what accents would the Founding Fathers have spoken with? Well, as there are no sound recordings from the time, we can only go from the written record. Since spelling was not as rigidly structured as it is today, people tended to write out many words the way they sounded. Based on that, we see that many Southerners tended to pronounce words in very similar ways to the Southern accents that we know today. For example, George Washington spelled the word get, G-I-T, meaning he probably pronounced it git, which is the traditional Southern pronunciation of the word. Similarly, New England delegates had accents similar to more modern New England accents, such as dropping the R's from words, as in pack the cat in habit yad. There are occasional references to people complaining about being unable to understand the speech from those of other regions, so the accents were probably rather pronounced. Today we find our accents kind of fading as national TV and radio have begun to homogenize speech for several generations, but prior to mass media, regional accents were much more pronounced and the language probably drifted faster. I should also note that many colonists have referenced that they knew a person was from England or Scotland based on their accents. This tells us very clearly that the accents in colonial America were already far different from those in Britain. Incidentally, British linguists have also noted that British accents from the 18th century are very different from British accents today. So it's not just distance, but also time that causes accents to drift. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another 
American Revolution podcast. <laughs>